Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys. Today's episode of Other People is brought to you by the brand new Real Estates app. It's an app for your iPhone, your iPad, what have you. R-E-E-L, Estates, Real Estates. It's only 99 cents. Here's what it is. It's an app that shows you where the houses and apartments of your favorite fictional characters in film and television are actually located in real life. You want to see the Brady Bunch house in Studio City? The Real Estates app will take you there. Or what about Jeff Lebowski's bungalow in Venice Beach? done or how about hannah horvath's brooklyn apartment in the hit television show girls the real estates app knows all you've seen these places on the screen but with the real estates app you can see them in person it's a great way to explore your city plan a trip or take out of towners on a unique tour with photos maps directions and a database of over 450 locations throughout the country real estates is easy to use and extremely entertaining better yet it spans decades of pop culture with TV shows ranging from The Jeffersons to Modern Family and a whole host of films ranging from Breakfast at Tiffany's to Ted. With the click of a button, you can see which real estates are near you. For all you know, you could be blocks away from Marty McFly's house or Elliot's house in E.T. Uh, did you know that Connor from Highlander lived on the same block as Derek Zoolander? Now you do. Real estates where your favorite characters live for more information, go to real-estates.com. That's R-E-E-L-estates.com. Or just get it at the App Store. It's available now for only 99 cents. This is an app. You can apply it. Go and get it. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listing. Just one person at just one time. Right. Okay, right. everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is your book-related podcast situation. This is recorded in a small rectangular room. Thanks for being here. I'm Brad Listy. I'm sitting in a chair in Los Angeles, and it is nice to be with you. Uh, a couple things, uh, just right off the top here. I'm, I'm, you know, a couple things are stuck in my head this week. You know, one of which is the internet. Uh, I was reading about a guy who quit the internet for a year. Did you read that story? It was going around online, 
But this guy basically totally uh, disconnected himself for a year. And at the end of the year, you know what? It was a really unsatisfying article for me. I wanted him to have some sort of epiphany. I wanted his life to be richer and to have a, a, you know, a measure of depth that it was previously lacking. But he didn't seem to indicate that. In fact, he seemed to indicate that he was happy to be back on Facebook, happy to be, you know, be back Skyping or whatever. So I've been thinking about that. And I've been thinking about how the internet is not inherently bad. This is no great leap in logic. It's not inherently bad. It's a tool. And it's a very uh, useful tool. It's a brilliant tool in many regards. When it comes to the uh, gathering of information, when it comes to connectivity at a certain level, emailing someone halfway around the world, you know, it's amazing. But... I'm terrible at the internet. I'm terrible at using it in any kind of efficient way. It sucks me in. It's like, it's almost like alcoholism. You know, you go into the bar for one drink and like three hours later you walk out in a blackout. That's like the internet for me. I sit down at the computer for one reason and three hours later I essentially wake up and I'm watching a YouTube video of a frat boy eating a handful of habanero peppers on a dare. So that's been on my mind. And then uh, another thing that's been on my mind is uh, on Mother's Day, I was visiting my parents. I was visiting my mother. I was at their house, and I decided that I would meditate. And uh, my mom walked in on me. <laughs> this is also strange. This, this is why it's, it's fascinating to me or why you know I can't shake it. It's such an odd thing. There's nothing wrong with meditating, sitting Indian style for 20 minutes in the dark or whatever. But uh, my parents are traditional Southern folk. And I've been trying to meditate because I feel like it's good for me. I like it. I like having a like something to practice. You know, like some sort of thing that I do as opposed to some sort of thing that I believe, if that makes any sense. So, uh, anyway, I'm at my parents' house and I tell my mom, I'm like, I'm going to go take a nap. And so I sort of like walk over into the front bedroom and, uh, I sit on the bed and then about 10 minutes later, my mom walks in or walks through the room actually on her way to a bathroom. She was looking for a towel. It's a long story, but she didn't see me at first. The lights were out. And then I felt the presence of someone in the room and, you know, and then it was, it was just awkward. It was like, I got caught masturbating. She was embarrassed. I was humiliated. She didn't know what was going on. Uh, just trying to do a good thing, you know, that's life happens like that all the time. You're just trying to do something good. And then it just winds up being a humiliation. And we didn't even talk about it. That's the other weird thing. We didn't talk about it afterwards. I mean, it's like being a teenager and your mom catches you beating off. And then it's just sort of weird for a day. And then you both pretend it didn't happen. I was just meditating. That's it. It's the most benign thing. <laughs> it's like the, the least offensive thing you can do. I was sitting Indian style, completely quietly, bothering no one, breathing. And yet I was really embarrassed when my mom caught me doing it. What is that? You know, I think it's just, I didn't want to have to explain it. 
my parents are traditional. You know, they don't, they would be like, what is this? Are you weird? That kind of thing. You know, maybe I am weird. I don't think I'm weird. I think that's the least weird thing I do. That's the point. And yet it's weird. So anyway, that's what's on my mind in case you cared. Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Uh, I'm very excited about today's guest. Uh, Benjamin Percy is here. Great to have him on the program. His new novel, Red Moon, is generating uh, all sorts of buzz and critical acclaim. It is available now from the good people at Grand Central Publishing, and uh, it is the May selection of the TNB Book Club, the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. For those of you who are not yet familiar with the NervousBreakdown.com, uh, that is my online culture magazine and literary community. I founded it in 2006, and we have a monthly book club. Uh, for only $9.99 a month, you get a brand new title delivered to your door every 30 days, and the, the books are handpicked. Uh, by myself and Jonathan Evison, and better yet, all book club authors appear on this program. So you can read the book, and then you can listen to me in conversation with the person who wrote the book, uh, or vice versa. And, you know, it's a good thing. And you should sign up if you're interested. It's very easy to do. Just go over to thenervousbreakdown.com, click on book club in the menu bar, and away you go. Okay? So without any further ado, this is my conversation with Benjamin Percy, and his new novel, once again, is called Red Moon. I'm at the Indigo Hotel in Brooklyn, so I'm in a, a, a zoo of hipsters presently. <laughs> uh, and I, I woke up this morning at 3 a.m. to catch uh, a car to the airport. And, and prior to that, probably... You know, so jacked up with adrenaline, probably got about half an hour of sleep. So running on fumes right now, but they're happy fumes. Okay. So wait, what you flew from where to where? Minneapolis, St. Paul okay. to uh, LaGuardia. Yeah. So hopping from bookstore to bookstore and visiting Hachette today. Okay. Yeah. No, I mean, it's like, it's a big moment. You know, the book is rolling out. It's gotten, um, it's getting a pretty good push. I mean, an excerpt in GQ, is that right? And then... Esquire. Uh, Square, Esquire, yeah. sorry, sorry, the, sorry. The other men's <laughs> magazine that features Italian loafers. Right, right, sorry. And then uh, then there was like the trailer got rolled out by Entertainment Weekly. Am I getting that yeah. right? So, yeah. I mean, the, the, like things have happened that are that are good for a book traditionally, and you've gotten great 
uh, blurbs and all the rest. So, like, do you feel – how do you feel? I feel incredibly grateful uh, because I've started at the bottom, you know, doing uh, you know, doing all of my own publicity, uh, using all of my own muscle to – to get excerpts into literary journals originally, uh, into you know into periodicals that might feature an interview or a profile. So having uh, you know the, the support of Grand Central, uh, it's it's pretty extraordinary, uh, and I don't take any of it for granted. That's for sure. Well, yeah, I mean that's like you know that's the part of it that. Uh, when you get to this stage, I think authors appreciate the most because you go through all the work to write the thing, and then there's the the struggle to get it into print, and then when the thing when, when it finally rolls out into the world, uh, you know you obviously want to do everything you can to to make it successful and to make it um, or, or to help it find readers. And so anyone who helps in that cause, which is thankless work too, you know, publicity is not easy to do, uh, and it just it requires I don't know. I find it like doing the, the various things that I do. I find it the hardest thing to get help with. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. my 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 publicist Sonia Shoes is, I mean, extraordinary, and I plan on getting her name tattooed across my heart because <laughs> she she's been that much of a cheerleader for me and a, and a coach. So that's you know that's not that's not something that happens often these days. I'm used to, as I said before, hustling my own wares. Right. Right. So let's start then. Let, let you, you know, you said you started at the bottom. So uh, since we're catching you now at this particular juncture, which uh, is a fortunate juncture, it might be worthwhile for listeners to hear, um, you know, the story of how, of how, sure. you've, how you've gotten to this point. So talk a little bit about um, your youth. You come from Oregon, correct? Yeah, I come from the sticks of Oregon. Grew up uh, in a kind of huck, huck finished kind of way. Uh, firing slingshots at jackrabbits and ducking under barbed wire fences and hammering together tree houses and building dams and rivers. I could essentially leave at dawn and come back by dusk without much in the way of supervision. Uh, you know, my father is a hunter and a fisherman. My mother is an obsessive hiker and camper. So had an, had a, and had an intensive outdoor education as a youngster and then somehow ended up on the east coast i uh, went to to brown and did not fit in there in fact when my roommate opened the door and met me for the first time and i was wearing shit kickers and wrangler jeans the first thing he <laughs> said to me was oh my god you're a hick <laughs> Well, and and I, I I never grew up dreaming I would be a, a writer. It, it it wasn't something that that seemed like a possibility, really. Though I was an obsessive reader. I was going to say. I actually ended up pursuing archaeology and anthropology, and went on several digs. And it was about midway through my time at Brown that I realized that the Indiana Jones fantasy was dissolving all around me <laughs> and there were no nazis to do battle with uh and certainly no beautiful women to find <laughs> in the scab lands of eastern oregon as i scraped through inch after inch of uh 
of soil in search of a bone chip. So I started taking creative writing classes uh, at the behest of my then girlfriend, now wife, and sort of fell in love with her and fell in love with the form at the same time and immediately began submitting to all the major magazines uh, and and had no idea what I was up against, really. The Atlantic Monthly, they seem like a good place. I think I'll submit to them. <laughs> I, think that's, and, I think that's common, though. I think people – I mean, it, it, I know a lot of writers who, like, right away, the first story they ever wrote, they're like, I think I should send this to the New Yorker. (laughs) (laughs) Well, every story in the country is written with the New Yorker in mind. But, yeah, early on, you just don't know how the odds are stacked against you. And that's a good thing, I guess. Uh, But C. Michael Curtis, bless his heart, he always wrote back. uh, and, And I remember getting rejection after rejection from him. And it was always on this small piece of paper written in very small it was as though he had this miniature typewriter. So I don't. Maybe he's two feet tall. I don't know. <laughs> but I, but I get these rejections from him that said things like, "This is unrepentantly artificial." Sincerely, see Michael Curtis. <laughs> but they would mean the world to me because somebody was responding to my work, and I and I just kept submitting and kept submitting all you know all the way through my undergraduate experience into grad school, and you know I joke that. My postman during this time, no doubt, had a bad back because of me. Uh, in those days, the rejections, the submissions were all by mail. So he, would, I think he had like an extra mail bag just for all the form, form rejections sent my way. <laughs> um, and I would, I would truly like, I would go out on the porch saying, well, time to go get rejected. And sure enough, there'd be three or four a day, it seemed like. So uh, you- and, and and then my first year of grad school, at the very end of that year, after what seemed like what what no doubt was hundreds of rejections, uh, you know, I landed my first pub at the Mississippi Review, and I can't tell you how much that moment meant to me. In many ways, I'm still chasing that first high. Um, so that's when I, you know, I, I guess it's a combination of things. You, you start to break into magazines maybe because you're you're getting better. And, and also, once you appear in some magazines, people start to recognize your work. So it, it becomes easier and easier to kick down doors. And, you know, I started, the, the acceptances started piling up, but it, the rejections were still piling up. Uh, and they still pile up to this day. Um, but I, you know, after a while, uh, published my first collection. And, and that was all on my own. Every agent in the business rejected me. Uh, and every editor in the business rejected me, and, and I ended up selling it on my own to Carnegie. I mean, selling, you know, <laughs> that's in quotes. Right, right. To Carnegie Mellon University Press. And uh, I had this moment of, of sort of marketing savvy uh, business insight that that I think had a ripple effect on my life. I, I went to Publishers Lunch, which I had been subscribing to for years, and posted my own deal and described it in the most flattering terms possible. <laughs> and, and within an hour, I had something like 75 emails from everyone from Warner Brothers to Albin Michel, who is to this day my French publisher, to a whole slew of agents, some of whom had already rejected me, wondering if I had any representation. Uh, so I found my agent that way, Catherine Fawcett, who's been with me ever since, and we've become really good pals. Uh, and 
and anyways, I, you know, I, I, during this time, even though I was publishing short stories and, and publishing the language of Elkland and publishing like uh, Refresh, Refresh, my, my second collection with Grey Wolf, I was getting novel after novel rejected. Uh, I wrote four failed novels. Four? Four, yeah, before selling The Wild End to Grey Wolf. Um, so there's, if you've heard Malcolm Gladwell talk or if you've read Outliers, he talks about the 10,000 hours required of you to become a master in any arena. You know, 10,000 hours as a harpist, 10,000 hours as a, as a painter, 10,000 hours as a baseball player. And the same thing applies to the keyboard. You know, I was, I hammered out my 10,000 hours and I think I probably threw away 10,000 pages as well. Um, and I really feel like, uh, you know, from the very beginning, it's my, it's sort of like this obsession, obsession that I have, this bullheadedness that I have, the thing that makes me get up at 4.30 a.m. and write until 2, the thing that made me, after we had our first kid, slam down a pot of coffee at 11 p.m. and stay up until 5 a.m., uh, you know, getting by sometimes on two hours of sleep a day, you know, just... I think that that stubbornness has distinguished my, you know, me more than anything. Like I, I, when I entered grad school, so many people were more talented than me. Nobody would have pointed to me and said, that's the guy who's going to make it. But I just, you know, I kept, I kept beating myself up. I kept getting, getting my ass kicked and, and never, never let it slow me down. Yeah. I was going to say, I mean, that's, I mean, just hearing kind of like the broad overview of your career so far, it sounds like, uh, if nothing else, you have an, uh, an incredible work ethic and you have uh, the ability to pick yourself back up after rejection and not let it get to you. Like, did you ever find yourself despairing or, you know, and, and then also what was your output like? I mean, how prolific uh, are you in terms of like your daily uh, regimen and how many words you're getting down every day? Uh, yeah, of course I have felt despair. Uh, you know, you... I send off a novel, I send off another novel, I send off another novel, I send off another novel, each time getting, you know, these sometimes kindly phrased rejections, but rejections nonetheless. And, you know, I'm sure my wife could tell you some stories about me lying on the couch and drinking whiskey and listening to depressing music. <laughs> but usually that lasted a day or two, and then I'd be like, you know, I played, you know, maybe plug Rocky into the DVD player, and uh, you know, throw a few shadow punches and be ready to go. So, uh, you know, I'm able to. I'm not, I'm not somebody who uh, worries too much, who 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 feels anxious much, who regrets much, and and I'm, I'm very forward thinking. Um, so, and, and that's you know, not necessarily a good thing in that I'm always have this sense of urgency to me. That's kind of annoying. I'm sure if you spend much time in my presence, uh, but it's, but it's helped me as a writer. And, you know, as for, uh, wait, what was the second part of that question again? Well, just, uh, you know, how prolific you've been. Like, oh yeah. I, don't, I never count words. I know that some people like my buddy, Matt Bell, he's always posting, uh, how many words he, 
he he he's uh, hammered out a day. And I was like, what what is that? Is that two pages or is that twenty? <laughs> I can barely calculate the tip at a restaurant. <laughs> I have no no gift for numbers. So I you know it's for me it's more time. I think that's what I pay attention to more. You know, I, I, and sometimes the best work's being done when you're not even moving your, you know, when you're not even uh, moving your fingers, when you're not even uh, hammering out words. You're just you're just sitting there. Uh, brow furrowed, uh, moving ideas around in your head. So, you know, I, I, ideally I'm working eight hours a day, seven hours a day. I like those long slogs of time so that I can really feel immersed and lost in this dreamscape. And at the end of the day, I'm, you know, I look back on the manuscript and I'm not sure how much I've done because I've deleted so many pages as well as added so many pages. I don't know what it all adds up to. I don't, I don't really worry about that kind of thing. I just think, you know, I got to get to the end of this chapter or I got to get to the end of this short story. Um, and you know, I, I guess that I, I produce quite a bit. Now I, I say, you know, I'm able to work seven hours a day, eight hours a day, but I, you know, I've been gifted with that time as a result of my hard work in the past, you know, like my, jobs early on were killers like you know I've four four load four different preps grading 2,000 pages a semester um, and and truly like some days I would uh, stay up till 3 a.m. to to write I would wake up at 6 a.m. to grade I would prep I would uh, you know pound out a book review, I would fiddle with the novel and the screenplay, like, and at the same time, I'm here I am juggling family, uh, trying to be a good father and husband. It's like, basically my, you know, my secret is, uh, don't have fun. Like, <laughs> I was going to say, this sounds, no this, this sounds awful. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not, yeah, I'm not advocating this as like a, a life, a lifestyle anyone should chase. It's just, you know, that's the way I'm, I'm hardwired and, my heart will probably explode, uh, you know, before I hit 40 as a result of it. Well, that's, I mean, like, let's try to nail this down because, I mean, this is, I mean, it's very common. People who have this bug have this bug, you know, and it takes it takes on slightly different forms, but it's the basic model, right? You, you have to do it. Um, do you know why? Like, what are you trying to say? Like, do you know what I'm saying? Like, what, what is it, what is it driving you to do all this work? I feel like there's no way to answer that question without sounding like a douchebag. Uh, I mean, I could talk about entertaining and educating and, you know, creating empathetic experiences so that we might better understand the human condition. And, and all of that might be true, but there's, there's something that's, it's like a, that's like a justification that comes after the fact. There, there's something more ethereal. Uh, that 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 makes me want to tell stories. Uh, that makes me want to to build characters and, and build worlds. And and I don't think I can I can put a finger on it uh, except that I'm I'm probably mentally ill. <laughs> well, you know, like you know, that, that's not a, that's like the old joke. I mean, this this impulse is you know maybe a form of mental illness, or maybe if we if you didn't do this, then the mental illness might like actually manifest or something. It's actually saving you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. I mean, if the guy in the rubber room is 
probably not living a lifestyle so different than mine. He just doesn't have a pen and paper. Right. He does. Yeah. Or like you know, just like the ritual or whatever. The housekeeper just walked in on me, and I'm wearing my underwear. <laughs> well, tell her hello. I'm good. Thank you. <laughs> That's a first for this program. And then she just came, she just came back in, too. Oh, <laughs> I guess she wanted a second look. I was gay, you know? Take it as a compliment. <laughs> um, okay, so let's talk a little bit about, um, you know, I guess uh, the the writing process for Red Moon, which... It seems like a, a bit of a departure, you know, from previous work. I mean, it's also dealing with some of the same themes, I'm sure, but it feels like you're taking on, um, uh, you know, more of a what's the word that I'm looking for? Uh, surrealistic, um, kind of uh, sci-fi, extraterrestrial. You know what I'm saying? Okay. Um, you know, like where did this all come from? Like what? Like describe the decision you made to go in this direction. Where was the book born? It, it, it's it, the only way that it's a departure for me is that it's an epic novel, and that's the kind of novel that I never thought I would be capable of writing. It's always the kind of novel that I've enjoyed most. I love the way that Susanna Clarke's Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell swept me away for so many weeks. I love the way that George R. R. Martin's Song of Fire and Ice series totally consumed me. Is it wait? Is that is that the uh, the Game of Thrones guy? Yeah. Okay, so I should just, I mean, I, I need to interject because this is the kind of stuff that, like, I, I tell people or I tell myself that I'm not into. I am so into Game of Thrones, it's not even funny. <laughs> like, I'm, a, I'm obsessed with it. I watch the shit out of Game of Thrones. Yeah, I, I can't get over it. I mean, like, just the the production value and, like, it's perfectly cast and it's just really gripping. And, and Oh, the books are genius, too. Yeah, you know, I'll have to get them. Um, but, yeah, I mean, that, that's... That's the the departure for me. Uh, the wilding, you know, for a while, for a long time, as I was getting these novels rejected and rejected, I thought that you know maybe I'm just a short story writer, and I don't mean to say that in a, an annoying sort of way, like just a short story writer. I, lo I love short stories, and I would have been perfectly content to be a short story writer, a sprinter. Uh, but you know, I, I had this this desire to compose something monstrous uh, to. You know, it's no different than my desire to, to take on a marathon right now. So the, the Wilding was the no, novel that taught me how to write a novel successfully. And my brain changed in the course of that novel. I, I was, I, you know, my synapses rewired. And now I think almost exclusively in the long form. So that's, that's what I see as the departure on this novel. I've been writing in the horror genre all along. Uh, and sometimes you might not be able to recognize it as such. I mean, if you look at Peter Straub's blurb on the back of Refresh, Refresh, he refers to me as a horror writer, even though those stories are all from the Paris Review and, uh, you know, uh, the Cream City Review and, and wherever else. Uh, but But the caves in Oregon, there's no... There's no ghost in that story, but it's a haunted house story. Uh, and and Crash is another ghost story. And The Woods is a, a creature in the woods story. And and the, many of the novels that I wrote were supernatural stories, and they just didn't sell. And The Wilding, in fact, was a supernatural novel. But 
I didn't pull it off. And my agent and editor advised me to make the threat in the wilderness true, grounded in realism. And so it became a bear instead of a beast. So I grew up on genre. I grew up on fantasy novels. I read every single Dragonlance and Forgotten Realms novel. I read the Wheel of Time series obsessively. I grew up on sci-fi. I grew up on westerns. I grew up on detective stories, spy thrillers. I grew up, though, especially obsessed with horror. And the horror section of Powell's books remains like one of those magic spots from my childhood. Um, and and Anne Rice, Stephen King, Dean Koontz, Peter Straub, Robert R. McCammon, John Saul, Shirley Jackson, Poe, Lovecraft. You know, those, I'm chasing their, I've been chasing their tracks in the mud all along. So, uh, I don't, I don't see myself as doing anything different really than, than what I've been doing all along and that I'm trying to, you know, write some pretty sentences, but I'm also trying to like write a propulsive, thrilling plot and, uh, throw some, throw some scares in. Well, yeah, I mean, like, there's so much that you just talked about that that uh, brings question, you know, questions to mind. And I guess w- one place to start would be, you know, whatever the Wilding lacked, or you know, whatever didn't work in the Wilding from a supernatural standpoint, that does work in Red Moon. Like, did you learn from that experience and figure out why? Do you know what I'm saying? Like, when you when you start to venture into this territory, um, do you know? what it needs in order to work or is it just more yeah. like an intuitive thing and I think it's it is part of it is just how do you make how do you make the extraordinary ordinary how do you make the awful regular enough that we can buy into it that it seems authentic and if you look at red moon you'll see that the werewolves or the lichens as i call them are not full moon howlers and this was part of that larger strategy. How can I make this into a believable horror? So I focused on the slippery science behind this animal-born pathogen that leaps out of the wolf population and into the human population and mutates. This happens in prehistoric times, and you fast forward today, and 5% of the population is infected. And these prions, these misfolded proteins, very similar to mad cow and chronic wasting disease, target the brain and are very much connected to rage and sexual impulse. And I spent a lot of time with the USDA labs and a lot of time with researchers at Iowa State University in order to make the vaccination process, the mutation and spread of the disease as you know credible as I could. So I think that was one of that was one of the things that I finally figured out in in, in, in successfully capturing the supernatural. And then what about what about the territory? Because you've written about this as well. Um, but talk a little bit about the terrain that exists in between uh, quote you know quote unquote literary fiction and genre fiction because you seem to operate in both worlds. You know, or you seem to have. Um, kind of a hybridized form at work here? I mean, do you agree, disagree? But I think it's a worthy question for a lot of reasons, um, not the least of which is that 
I think that the two sides of the line have a lot to teach one another. Yeah, I mean, I guess you could, you know, you you can talk about literary versus genre, but really, I, I feel like it's almost irrelevant now. I feel like there is no such thing. There are these 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 are all phantom barricades at this point. Uh, you know, look at look at Larry McMurtry. Is is Lonesome Dove a western, or is it? An American masterpiece. Is it? You know, look at look at Margaret Atwood. Look at Cormac McCarthy. Look at Warren Ellis. Look at Peter Straub. Look at Dan Sean. Look at Dennis Lehane. Uh, you know, you could say there are these different extremes. Like, oh, you know, genre doesn't pay attention to. To exquisite language or three-dimensional characters uh, or subterranean themes, but that's not true. That's that's true of some crappy books, but that's not true of genre. Uh, you could say that literary fiction, you know, is doesn't pay attention to causal action and isn't compulsively readable, but that's that's not necessarily true. Sure, there are some genre stories, I guess you could say, that have pedestrian language and cardboard cutout characters, and sure, there are literary stories where nothing happens except for a bunch of pretty sentences describing somebody drinking tea and <laughs> having an orgasmic epiphany when staring at a roiling bank of clouds, but like, <laughs> the road is a post-apocalyptic novel, and it won the Pulitzer. Right. So everybody, you know, I think needs to just get over it. Right, right. Well, yeah, I mean, and I think, like, I think some people, I mean, I think a lot of people tend to, well, I guess, I don't know, it's hard to say, but I feel like there are people on the literary side, the quote-unquote literary side, who look down their nose sometimes at quote-unquote genre books, and I think there are people who, you know, just think literary fiction is nothing but pretense and, you know. Yeah, and both sides are assholes. Right, and I, th I think they're both wrong. And just like you say, these, these distinctions are sort of silly to begin with. I think we should instead have like a, a bookstore divided down the middle. <laughs> and on one side, there's like fiction that sucks. And then on the other side, there's fiction that kicks ass. Right. That's all that matters. So uh, let's talk about concentration. Because I don't think you're getting the work done, uh, you know, the work that you've done done without it. And, uh, you know, it's a common issue for all of us who are trying to do this work, which requires long, sustained periods of concentration. And we've already sort of talked about the work ethic and the lack of sleep and, the, you know, the hypercaffeination and all that kind of stuff. But, like, how do you uh, spend an eight-hour day at the keyboard um, with regard to the to the internet and your phone and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How does that how does that work? Well, some days are better than others, and I have to say that nothing interferes with writing a book more than putting out a book. You know, it's been very difficult this past month, in particular, with Red Moon launching, uh, to write. In that, you know, I'm getting sometimes eighty emails a day, uh, and some of them need my immediate response because they have to do with the release. So this has been kind of a, you know, an ADHD 
time period. And I look forward to uh, the quiet spell to follow the tour, which is not uh, me whining. It's just that you know, th- I feel this is very much a, a necessary pa- part of of, uh, of the writing process, putting yourself out there and, and, and hustling just as a band would when putting out an album. Sure. But you know, you, it's, it's difficult to pound the keyboard with uh, with concentration when you're in a different hotel room every day uh, or when you miss your family or when you have to answer 50 Q&As uh, in the course of two weeks or something like that. Or do a, so, or, or do a podcast. You know. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, you know, I'm happy to do all I'm happy to do all those things. It's just like getting the work done when you talk about concentration. My concentration, I'll be quite honest, is not that great right now. But when I am able to have a stable routine, I think, like, routine is key. You know, sitting down day after day in the same place at the same time, surrounded by the same crap. And, uh, you know, treating it like a job. Clock in, clock out. The muse doesn't have to strike. You don't wait for the muse to strike. You just have to be open at the desk that whatever's swimming by has a chance to swim in. So in the bowels of summer or the bowels of, of winter, that's usually when I get my, my best work done. And not in these sort of transitionary periods at the end of a semester. Well, when I- I'm hustling with a bunch of portfolios or right before a book comes out when I'm hustling with all the marketing. Well, I was going to say, like, are you, in, in light of all of the press that you've been doing for this book and the travel that you have to do now, are you even trying to write creatively? Like, are you even giving that effort, or do you just allow yourself, like, a month to do this? No, I'm trying. Uh, I'm, I'm not always successful, but I feel like I, you know, I, I, I'm putting the final touches on this, this next novel, and it's due in mid-June, so I sort of don't have a choice. Yeah. Uh. Um, but it, you know, I'm also able to I'm able to write nonfiction a lot with, with much more ease when I'm on the road than I am fiction. And what? I guess that's because the you know you don't have to invent everything. Right. The, the characters are already there. The world is already there, and you're just figuring out the most you know the the best way to put it on the page. Do you think that nonfiction is easier? For me, it is. Yeah. But that that's that's me. Uh, and it certainly isn't emotionally easier if you consider uh, the risk that some people are taking on the page. But it, if I look at my students, my undergraduates in particular, I have to say that the nonfiction workshop always blows the fiction workshop away. And I think that's probably because they don't have to make everything up, you know, and they can concentrate instead on craft. Whereas the fiction workshop is focusing all that mental energy on invention, the invention of a world, of characters, of some sort of causal narrative, and as a result, uh, maybe the the prose gets diluted. So, as a teacher uh, of fiction, uh, do you have a do you have like a methodology? What do you tell them? You know, because I've taught before and like. It's it's a little tricky, you know. I always feared. I think one of the fears that I always had, and maybe you maybe you're the same, or maybe you're different, is that uh, I was always worried that like 
Uh, I never wanted to be too critical of somebody in the early stages simply because I didn't want to mess with somebody who who could later go on. Like, I, I guess what I'm saying is that, like, it was hard for me to trust my judgment because I know, just like you were talking about earlier, that sometimes the person in the class who, you know, you read their stuff and you're like, there's no way. Well, that's the person. And so if you, if you hammer them too hard, you know, it can be delicate. Yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. I mean, undergraduates, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty gentle with. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to make them enthusiastic. I'm trying to make them fall in love with short stories and essays. I'm trying to make them into strenuous readers for life. Uh, graduate students, I can be pretty mean to, though. Uh, but it's always with a constructive edge. Uh, I'm, you know, you can't teach talent. And a lot of a lot of the undergraduates aren't there in your workshop to to pursue writing for life. They're they're there to dip their toe in the pool. So, you know, my hope is that I I, I sort of change the way that they by by teaching them how stories are constructed by making them uh, tighten the screws and move the lumber around themselves. I hope that they approach books approach movies differently from there out. Uh, I can remember the way my own you know, mind kind of awakened to that fact. I was I was a sophomore in high school and I was taking a class with an English class with Mrs. O'Shea. And Mrs. O'Shea was talking about Kate Chopin's The Awakening. And uh, in particular the symbolism of the seagull and I threw up my hand and I said it's just a seagull it's there for beach ambiance <laughs> and she Mrs. O'Shea shook her head and smiled sadly at me and you know I'm, I'm just here to say officially so many years later Mrs. O'Shea I'm sorry <laughs> right you know, the seagull does mean something and and you only come to understand this after spending all of those hours in the careful you know as, as a careful carpenter. Um, so yeah, when I'm dealing with undergrads, and even when I'm dealing with with graduate students, I'm you know I'm teaching is a form of of theater really. I, I walk in the room and I try to just infect people with my enthusiasm for story. Yeah. Well, and then what about you? You mentioned earlier, you know, you're trying to teach them how stories are constructed. And, you know, in particular, I'm interested in like suspense and uh, creating those moments on the page that uh, really, you know, leave a person riveted, really excite. Um, talk about that because, you know, your work is sort of known for that. You're good at creating suspense on the page and you're good at, um, you know, keeping people turning. How do you do it? It's hard to nutshell that. Um, I have a book coming out with Grey Wolf in 2015 called Thrill Me, and that's essentially the subject matter: um, how to how to create how to build suspense and momentum in fiction. Uh, and you know, one trick is withholding information, knowing how to dole it out, knowing knowing how to to keep it just out of reach 
tantalize the reader into continuing. Uh, to give you an example of this, when I was in high school, I met a guy named Darren. And the first thing that Darren said to me was, hi, I'm Darren. Do you know how to make a tissue dance? And when he was in fifth grade, he had been at Disney World waiting in line for a roller coaster, slurping on a purple slushy, when a guy came out of the crowd, grabbed him by the shoulder and said, hey, kid, how do you make a tissue dance? And he said, I don't know. And then the guy retreated into the crowd, and the line moved forward. And just as Darren was clicked into the roller coaster, the guy appeared beside him and yelled out, hey, kid, how do you make a tissue dance? And the roller coaster was beginning to clack up towards that first descent at this point, and Darren was unable to enjoy himself as the roller coaster looped and dipped because he was looking down and seeing this man looking up at him, mouthing the question, how do you make a tissue dance? The roller coaster ended. He got off, searched for the guy, couldn't find him. It was haunted. He needed to know the answer to this question. So this was when he was like in fifth grade. I met him in high school. All these years, every time he introduced himself to someone, he asked if they knew how to make a tissue dance. So I was working in an athletic club at this time. It was one of those, you know, had a bunch of shitty jobs there, like maintaining the equipment and mowing the grass and picking up all the towels in the locker room that the old rich men used to dry out their orifices. And, oh, God. And everybody there was you know, rich and named Tad, I think. <laughs> and I heard over the, the lockers, one of them say, Hey, Tad, I've got a good one for you. How do you make a tissue dance? And I heard the response, and I dropped the towels. And just to show you what kind of asshole I am, I held this knowledge over Darren for a good year. <laughs> and, you know, our friendship suffered because of it. And then one day when we were about to head off to college and we were doing that thing that everybody does, having one last hoorah before going our separate ways, we were water skiing on Lake Billy Chinook in Central Oregon. And Darren was out behind the boat, getting towed along, doing tricks. And I was sucking down a PBR. And I decided, why not? Why not now? So I yelled out to him over the roar of the engine, how do you make a tissue dance? I could tell by the widening of his eyes that he knew I was going to finally tell him. So how do you make a tissue dance? You put a little boogie in it. <laughs> and at that moment, Darren released the tow rope and fell back and allowed the waves to swallow him up with a look of utter disappointment on his face. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, after after all those years, I mean, I, there's a lot that there's a lot to ask here. Like, first of all, who's the creepy guy at Disneyland who's, who's stalking this kid? You know, exactly. Like all these unanswered questions. Yeah, but really, like the eventual revelation is never that exciting. Uh, you know, the the most terrifying moment in any horror story is when you hear the noise behind the door and approach it. Whatever is behind that door is almost irrelevant. Like we, we might scream, we might laugh, but it's always with a kind of disappointed relief because it's what we am. It's because it's the wonder that matters. It's what we believe might be there we, when we fill in the darkness with our imagination. And, and you need to be able to withhold things in narratives. There's, of course, a, a point when, that, when, when the audience is patient, patience expires, but holding things out of reach and not 
giving them up too easily. Like that's there's one craft trick. Yeah, we that have. I might talk about, but I've got you know ten, I could talk about ten thousand other things too. Well, and it's I mean, how did you arrive at all of these? I mean, did, is this something that you you know you you've written something of, <clears throat> of book length about it? But is it something that you like kind of picked you know picked apart or, or picked out from other books that you've admired, or is, did you read about craft uh, exhaustively? Um, and then settle on your favorites or do you know what I'm saying? Cause it gets hard to kind of, I don't know. It seems like a leap of, of faith or an act of great confidence to be able to diagnose, you know, no, that's, that's just the way that I work. I, you know, there was a time in my life when I was reading every book, I could get my hands on as quickly as I could because I felt so far behind and I just was, everything was a confused muddle in my head. <clears throat> so, I started slowing down, and I'm a I'm a very slow reader. You know, I, I I take a long time to get through a book now, and I scribble all over it as I'm reading, and I'm rereading paragraphs and rereading them, and sort of diagramming the way that they function. I'm breaking down chapters sometimes. Uh, when I was when I decided to write Red Moon, I I took several thrillers, including The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, and I blueprinted the entire book in a yellow legal tablet. And my book bears no resemblance to The Girl and the Dragon Tattoo, but I just wanted to figure out how he did it. How did he create that formula? And a lot of it had to do with withholding information and putting clues in. Yeah, I was going to say, how did he do it? I mean, you know, because you know, what just popped into my head is sort of random, but I remember reading something about Rivers Cuomo of Weezer. And, and how, he, like, he would take, like, you know, hit rock songs by, like, The Cars or Nirvana, and he found some way to diagram them, or he found, you know what I'm saying, he, he blueprinted them, essentially, to yeah. find out what they were doing that was making them so sticky. And so... Yeah, yeah. Um, the same thing. Yeah, so, but, like, what did you learn? Like, what did you learn about, just for example, Girl with the Dragon Tattoo? You said that he withheld information, but, like, what else, like... Uh, oh, you know, you could look at... Okay, he puts a clue here on page 35. And because the camera lingers on it, you know it's important. But it doesn't satisfy or give the next substantial clue at least connected to that clue until page 75. And then again on page 125. So you see how things are sort of teased out. Uh, I see how, like, he might bring things to an emotion, you know, to a heightened emotional moment and then cut away. Instead of resolving things within a chapter, that's what I was doing early on. That was one of my failures as a novelist, is I was treating chapters like short stories. Every chapter sort of resolved an arc. Instead of what you should be doing is in a chapter building towards something and then cutting away. And not resolving it until later. Uh, so I learned how to, you know, do that sort of thing. I learned how to rotate among characters how long chapters should be in a suspenseful narrative, how to... How long How long should they be? Usually no more than 10 pages. Yeah, pacing is super critical. You know, like, I have a hard... Like, I find myself, when I look at a book, I mean, unless it's really, really got me, if you look, you know, you look at a chapter, it's tempting to sort of thumb through it, and if you're looking at, like, a 45, 50-page chapter, it can be sort of deflating sometimes. Yeah, yeah, 10 pages. That's all you got. Uh, and then I don't know how to how to balance out 
danger or terror with moments of levity and love, you know, blah, blah, blah. Right, right. Is there, is there a book or an author who has taught you the most about this kind of stuff? Is there somebody you look to and you say, oh, my God, like this person is the master? Or is it basically picking certain strengths from a variety? Yeah, I, I'm more the type of guy who, who looks at the same way that I used to look to teachers, like, all right, I'm going to listen to everything this teacher has to say during the semester, and at the end of the semester I'm going to take away seven things from them and ignore these uh, these four other things. And then the next teacher you take away three things you agree with and seven things you don't agree with. And the same thing with, with books, like I'm always looking for what not to do, what to do. You used to acquire a larger and larger arsenal, but, you know, I can point to Margaret Atwood or Cormac McCarthy or Dan Simmons or any number of people and say, check out the many ways that they kick ass. Right, right. And when you talk about reading slowly, um, you know, it's it's the, the bookend to the writing work that you do. You know, it's the other side of the coin. Like you're working as a writer with great discipline and productivity um, but you say you read slowly. So when you're working on a book, are you also reading voraciously? Uh, like, you know, how many books a month do you read? I don't read a lot of books a month because I'm so, like, I'm so slow. Right. But I'm reading a lot. Despite, I, by reading a lot, I mean I'm spending a lot of hours reading without necessarily getting to a lot of pages. Yeah. So I try to read every evening. Okay. And so and you're and you're talking book reading, not in, in, in addition to. Uh, reading, yeah. In addition to like magazine reading, online reading, etc. Yeah, yeah. I tend to only read magazines on the can or in a plane. <laughs> yeah, air, airplanes are great for magazines. It seems like. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, books are, you know, I I have a pen and a book in my lap every evening uh, in bed or in my in in my library. So that's usually how I wind down. So you have a library. Yeah, yeah, it was one of the things I've always wanted, and uh, we moved into this new place. We had a spare bedroom and put in put in uh, some shelves, and yeah, got a chair in there, look out in the woods. It's, it's, uh, it's the square footage I always wanted. That's awesome. So, okay, so let's talk about your, I mean, we know about your work routine, but when you, and you say you have family. How many kids do you have? Two kids. I've got a daughter who's four years old and a son who's seven. Okay. They're both they're both nerdy as well, <laughs> obsessed with storytelling. And uh, my daughter mostly uh, uses her creative energy when playing Pretty Ponies, which I'm drawn into on a daily basis. <laughs> uh, and my son, he he's already writing his own books. He wrote a Scooby Doo novel recently called Alien Rampage. <laughs> Um, it's pretty good, actually. <laughs> and uh, he just wrote uh, a comic book about peeps, you know, the Easter peeps. Yeah. So, yeah, it's fun to see them toying around with words on the page. So how do you, I mean, in light of all that, I mean, because I have a young daughter and I know that they can bring some noise into your uh, workspace if you're working from home. Like, how do you, like, where do you work space-wise? Do you work in the <laughs> library or do you get out of the house or... Well, I've got a, an office in the basement. It's the first time I've ever had an office. I've always uh, worked off of my kitchen table in the past, so it's really nice to have my own space finally. 
Um, and I go down there, and it's pretty quiet, really. So sometimes the kids are stomping overhead, but the rule is that, you know, don't bother Daddy when he's playing with his imaginary friends. <laughs> and they honor it. And, and, you know, then some credit should go to your wife, who I'm assuming is helping protect you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, every every now and then I get an interruption, of course. But sure. In general, I've, you know, we've made it clear that I need that. Even if I'm not clickety-clacking, that doesn't mean I'm not working. Right. But sometimes, weirdly enough, working means staring into some middle distance and drooling. <laughs> but you know what? That's the truth, and it's hard to – it's a hard thing to defend to the uninitiated, you know, because, like, I remember when I was in college, I did a workshop with uh, John Patrick Shanley, the guy who wrote Doubt, and okay. uh, he wrote Moonstruck, <clears throat> you know, but he's – he was just talking about writing, and he's like, you know, sitting is working. As long as you're at the keyboard, even if you're not typing, you're working. And that can sound insane to somebody who's not a writer, but it's the dead truth, you know? It is. It is. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I want to ask you a little bit more about Oregon before we go, just because I feel like it's, you know, place, uh, plays such a big role in your work. That's where you're from. You haven't been back there. You know, you don't go back there a great deal from what I've read about you, but uh, in your imagination, you're there a lot. So just talk about why. And I think, it, you know, and talk about that experience for a writer to have a place that is so central in the imagination, because I think it happens a lot for us. And it's often a place we've left. Yeah, yeah. Why? Well, I, I guess I never realized how special Oregon was until I left it. And that's true of many people. You know, you you don't realize how curious your own backyard is and, until you have that perspective that comes with distance. So Oregon is a very dramatic landscape. It has mountains, it has desert, it has plains, it has rainforest, it has ocean. Uh, it's a really interestingly fragmented state politically, economically. It's a great stage for fiction. Uh, and it's the place I know best. I grew up there, and since then I haven't really stopped moving. So I think that my wife and I figured out we've never lived any place longer than three years. I guess we lived in Iowa for four years. So ever since we've met, ever since I've been in college, it's always been three years, three years, three years, three years, uh, jumping from job to job, state to state. And this is the first time having moved to Northfield, Minnesota, that I've had any sort of sense of rootedness. You know, we moved to Northfield for the long haul. Um, Why? And, oh, a number of reasons. One is that uh, we love Minnesota. It's pocked with lakes. It's thick with forests. Uh, we have family nearby. My wife's family is just across the river in Wisconsin and with two kids. Having grandparents nearby is pretty essential. Sure, yeah. Uh, the Twin Cities is an amazing, has an amazing literary scene. Minnesota as a whole is the number one state for artist support. Northfield as a town has two colleges, which give it great diversity and great culture, despite the fact that it only has 20,000 people. It's a very progressive town. There's an awesome charter school there that is the equivalent of a private school education for my kids. So 
on and on and on I could go. But I was going to say you could work for the Chamber of Commerce. Like I want to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a great, great town. And uh, my wife is from Minnesota, so I, I, you know, I know that part of the country, and I'm from, I'm from Wisconsin, so okay. I have yeah. a, I have affection for the North. I, yeah, I love I love Wisconsin and Minnesota both. Um, Iowa, not so much, I have to say. Although many good friends there. Right. Love you guys. That's right. <laughs> That's what I always say about Indiana. <laughs> Uh, but anyways, you know, Oregon is just when when that imaginative trap door opens, that's where that's where I end up. Yeah, and then your sister is also a writer. So, like, talk a bit more about your family. I know you said your your parents are kind of outdoorsy folk, but like, were they creative? Like, do you come from artists, or what were your folks doing when you were a kid? Well, we're a family of readers. Most evenings, we were sprawled out on the living room floor reading together, like not reading aloud to one another, just reading. Um, and, you know, we made weekly pilgrimage and weekly pilgrimage to the bookstore, it seemed like, and, uh, we lived out in the country. So, uh, you know, imagination was pretty central to f- fighting off boredom. And my <clears throat> parents are, uh, I guess of a more scientific bend. My, my mom is a storyteller. Uh, by that I mean she loves to sort of make drama out of everyday life and tell, you know, sort of exaggerated yarns about a flash flood that happened when she was camping once or a time when she gutted an elk uh, in the middle of a snowstorm and that that sort of thing. So, you know, I grew up, she's a great oral storyteller. So wait, your mother can gut an elk? Oh, yeah. My parents were, for a time there, I guess you could say back to the landers, and all the meat that we ate was harvested by my father, and my my mother was the one who butchered everything. Uh, and we had a hen house, and we grew all our own vegetables and fruit. So, yeah, I grew up eating bear. That's why my voice sounds like this. <laughs> Did you really? Yeah, yeah. Your dad would hunt bear? Yeah. Look like brown bear or black bear? Black bear. We've got... Yeah, we've got several pelts at the house. Jesus, that sounds like elk. Your parents sound tough. <laughs> They're tough. They're tough. <laughs> um, and then your sister is also a writer. That you know, you guys both won NEA grants, the first siblings ever to win in the same year. Is that right? Yeah, it's pretty pretty amazing. Um, I'm so I'm so proud of her, and I'm really excited for the book she's got coming out in 2014. It's called Demon Camp, and when you talk about tough, well, my sister is one tough cookie. She infiltrated this cult, and I can't really summarize the book adequately, but there, all sorts of scary shit happens to her as a result of this. Wait a minute. What? She? In, I mean, I know this is a different well, it's guess. All about P, it's all about PTSD and this one religion uh, called Deliverance based, without irony, out of Georgia. Um <laughs> believes that they're, I mean, I'm, I'm really blurring things here, uh, simplifying things here, but they believe that demons are manifested for different sins. So, like, you steal a lot, you have the kleptomaniac demon. You fuck a lot, you've got the nymphomaniac demon. That's kind of a good way to excuse your behavior. But anyways, they believe that PTSD is a destroyer demon that haunts people. And so, she's not just focusing on this cult. That's one of the storylines. It's the book as a whole is about PTSD. 
and she goes over to Bosnia as well as part of her investigation. But, uh, you know, she becomes haunted herself, and she has performed exorcisms and been exorcised. Wow. Okay. Well, that sounds interesting. <laughs> I'll, have to, I'll have to talk to her at some point. <laughs> Um, so what's that, you know, so you're on this tour, uh, how many cities are you hitting? Just a handful and then back to Minnesota? Gone all of May. So New York, Denver, Seattle, Portland, Bend, Berkeley, Toronto, D.C., Milwaukee, Chicago, Houston. It keeps going. Wow. They're, they're sending you out. They're sending me out. That's good. And then uh, you get back at the end of May. You have some summertime to write? Got all of June free. And then... Uh, in July, I'm going to be teaching at the Tin House Writers Conference and the Fish Trap Writers Conference, uh, and then all of August free to hammer as well. So, looking forward to sleep, dreaming with my eyes open then. And then, what's the and what's the next novel? Can you tease it a little bit? Yeah, it comes out in June 2014 with Grand Central Hatchet once again. It's called The Deadlands, and it is a post-apocalyptic reimagining of the Lewis and Clark Passage. Wow. Okay. And that's in that, you know, that kind of touches on Oregon and the Northwest. I can sort of see how that formed. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, I grew up in the shadow of Lewis and Clark, so. Yeah. Well, I, uh, it all sounds great, man, and I'm happy for your success. I'm glad we got a chance to feature uh, Red Moon and the TNB Book Club, and it's been really fun and enlightening to, uh, to talk with you. So I wish you luck in your travels, and I wish you luck with the writing. Hey, man, I appreciate it. <laughs> Okay, guys, there you go. That's Benjamin Percy. Go get Red Moon. It's available now from Grand Central Publishing. You can find Ben online at BenjaminPercy.com. He's on Twitter at Benjamin underscore Percy, and he's on the Facebook as well. Thanks to Kill Rockstars, as always, for the good music. Be sure to check out KillRockstars.com. And uh, don't forget to join the TNB Book Club over at TheNervousBreakdown.com. And don't forget to get the app, the free official Other People app. It's available now for your iPhone, iPad, iPod Touch, or Android device. It's the best way to listen to this program. And once again, it's free, so please go get the app. Otherwise, uh, closing thoughts, the Internet, you know, I need to be more efficient. It's a simple answer. I think what I'm going to start doing is I'm going to start writing down a to-do list. This is what I need to get done. And when I sit down on my computer, I do those things, and then I have to get up. And, uh, you know, as for meditating, you know, maybe my mom and I, <laughs> maybe my mom and I need to have a talk. I don't know. I don't know. I'm almost 40. This is ridiculous. Please remember that J.D. Salinger was awarded five battle stars as a staff sergeant in World War II and that Emily Dickinson refused to sit for a photographer. That's it for now. Thanks for being here, you guys. I appreciate it. Thanks to Benjamin Percy and thanks to Grand Central Publishing. I'll be back in just a few days with another writer another conversation, etc. You know the drill. In the meantime, take good care of yourselves. Breathe deeply. Do not get lost inside of your computer. Don't get sucked in. Do not allow yourself to get sucked in. That's the thing about it. It tries to suck you in. Do not allow yourself to be sucked in. <laughs>